Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of What the Forensics. I'm Nicole, and of course, I'm joined today by my beautiful co-hosts, Journey and Rebecca. This week, we'll be discussing the backpack killer, Ivan Malat, and eyewitness identification. The three of us were in a psych and law course, and we're very interested in this topic, but we're also very frustrated <laughs> with this topic. So stay tuned, and I'm sure it'll be a great discussion. I just want to give a listener's discussion advice as well that this episode will have discussions of sexual assault, attempted suicide, and murder. So to kick things off, Journey, I have some information about the early life of Ivan Malott. So um, Ivan Malott was born on December 27th, 1944 in Newcastle, Australia. His parents were Croatian immigrants and he was the fifth of 14 siblings. So it ha- was a very full household. Um, he grew up in a harsh environment. His parents fought often, and his father was a very strict disciplinarian. So he learned at a young age to be dominant because the weak were often bullied. And as a result, he developed a quick temper and was known to be very violent. Um, a significant event in his life was the death of his sister, She died in a car accident that happened right around the corner from their house. So he was first on scene and was holding her as the paramedics came. Um, Unfortunately, she did die two weeks later, which was very traumatic for him because he was only a teenager at the time. And so he coped with his sister's death by obsessing over his image and developing extreme control issues. And, um, like, as an adult, he would never drink or smoke because being sober was the only way to manage his control issues and allowed him to be in control all the time. That's such a weird, like, coping mechanism for a death, like a yeah. family death. To con- Why would you obsess over your appearance and your looks? You yeah, and I, mean? I also wouldn't understand how control would come out of that. Like, I guess being able to control a situation and prevent a death? Like, I don't know. Yeah, I have no idea. Interesting. It's so weird. Anyway, as a teenager, he worked at a fruit stand. And then as an adult, he was working um, as a highway construction worker. Him and his brothers were often in trouble with the law and were frequently in jail throughout his childhood. So they were well known to the police officers. And he started his crime career by stealing things and actually spent most of the 60s in institutions. And um, when he nice. wasn't committing crimes, yes, <laughs> top notch citizen. Uh, when he wasn't committing crimes, he was riding his motorcycle or off roading in his four wheeler and hunting both animal and humans, it turns out. Um, The start of his more serious crimes was in 1971 when he picked up two hitchhikers and he told them that he wouldn't kill them if one of them had sex with him. They ended up pressing charges and charged him with rape, but he was acquitted after they ended up changing their stories. I don't know why they changed their stories, but yeah. And from that, he learned don't leave survivors. Imagine though, like if, two of us or all three of us got kidnapped and the guy was like, okay, I need to have sex with one of you. Like, what would we do? We'd be like, okay, I'm throwing you under the bus. Just like push one of you guys forward and be like, yeah, she'll, she'll take one for the team. Just extreme panic. question. Were they already in the car when they gave them this information? Okay. Yes. Cause if they were on the side of the road and he said, I'll drive you, but, but. one of you have, to have sex with me. <laughs> and I don't think I would get in the car. Yeah. No, he like drove them and they were, like quite a ways and I think he pulled over at like his killing grounds and was like hey I won't kill you if that's messed up not fantastic so lesson learned don't leave people alive pretty much (laughs) uh four years after this he met his wife Karen he was 30 and she was 17 and pregnant with another person's child I'm sorry Yes, you heard what? correct. Yeah. That's so She sad. was like, I'm pregnant and I don't know what happened to the other man, but she was looking for someone who just to look after her and decided that he was the contender. I mean, in terms of looking for someone just to look after you, I guess that would make sense because he's an older man. So she assumes, oh, he's already established and probably has at least some money to look after me and my child. But that is so sad. man, though. Yeah. Like, would you not have picked up on his control issues and obsession over himself? 
meeting. Do you think, I think she, she got knew the he picture? Ever went to prison? Um, well, their relationship was not fantastic, so I'm assuming she figured it out. Um, he was very possessive and violent and jealous. And one source said that he required receipts for every purchase that she made so that he could account for every dollar she spent. You guys don't do that? Yeah, that's no? not. No, I don't. <laughs> does that happen to you? <laughs> no, not common? Oh, shit, maybe I should figure some things out then. <laughs> <laughs> that's not a, normal, not a normal occurrence. And um, it was also said that he would like bottle up all his anger and then just explode with no warning. Um, so I believe there's a bit of abuse in their relationship and she ended up leaving him in 1987 and he burnt down the front of her parents' house as revenge and they got divorced in 1989. Good for her Six for months. leaving. Yeah. Right. I'm very proud of her for like getting out of there. Cause that's a tough situation to try and leave that. Right. And he only just burnt down the front of her parents' house. <laughs> just only. Only the front. I mean, like, <laughs> he didn't hunt front. her down and kill her, so. That's very true. Well, know. at that point, she wouldn't have been able to leave. But. True. Yeah. Anyway, six months after their divorce, the first set of the backpackers went missing. It suggested that he, like, lost control over his wife, so he had to find control somewhere else. And he decided that killing was the best way to do that. And it was also noted that in the periods when he wasn't killing, he had a girlfriend. But as soon as they'd break up, more hitchhikers would go missing. Oh, suspicious. yeah, very, very, very suspicious. Anyway, this takes us to the murders. Um, prior to Malat, Australia was considered one of the safest places in the world. And backpackers would come from all over to tour Australia. And as far as I know, they still do, but with a bit more caution now. The first set of remains was found by hikers in the Belanglo State Forest near Sydney. Ironically, they were found at a place called Executioner's Drop. Uh, these individuals were identified as British tourists Carolyn Clark and Joanne Walters. They were only 21 and 22. Um, they were last seen April 18th, 1992 in Sydney, and they were trying to get a ride to Adelaide to go fruit picking. And they were found four months after they disappeared. Walters was found lying face down under a rock. Her injuries were very severe, and there was one stab wound to her neck that would have killed her instantly. Um, the way her clothes were arranged indicated that she had been sexually assaulted, and there was also evidence that she had been gagged. Um, Clark was found 50 meters away from Walters. She was also found lying face down, but not under a rock. She had been shot 12 times in the head, and it was suggested that he used her head for target practice, as the trajectory of bullets suggested that he moved her head in between shots, and there was evidence of sexual assault. What? Okay, he but used why? Her for target practice? Yes. But why did he have a different method of killing for both the girls if they were together? That is one of the reasons why people think that there was two killers because they were oh. so different. Yeah, but if one stabbed and the other one shot. 12 or however many times in the head like no one would suspect that to be the same individual yeah. i'm not trying to sound morbid but you'd think if he used one for target practice he would use both yeah <laughs> maybe maybe but he just had the good aim Obviously i don't know not. Weird. <laughs> well and then the thing too that he placed i don't know if it was on purpose though the fact that he placed them face down has to be like indicative of something like he can't look at them he can't you know yeah they brought a profiler onto like the crime scene and they were like what does this tell you and he's like it tells me something like they were obviously placed in a way that was special to him and I was like that is very informative <laughs> it tells me something <laughs> yeah oh shit Pardon right French. <laughs> um all of his victims were, like, had that stab wound to the back of their neck that, like, killed them instantly. And they were either shot or stabbed kind of deal. Okay. So they were all so, very similar. Were the victims who were shot, did they also have the stab wounds to the neck? As far as I know, yeah. Okay. Yeah, so. that's that seems like it would definitely be something to connect the crimes. Because, like, I don't think everyone that stabs people goes and specifically tries to stab in the back of the neck i think that might have been the way that he killed them and then what was done 
it was kind of done after the fact. I'm not sure, though. Did he, morbid question, um, use any of the other victims as a target for shooting practice? Um, one of them was shot six times in the head, but mm-hmm. that's not as much as um, yeah. Clark. So, I think Interesting. her. Yeah. Uh, yeah, anyway. Uh, the second set of remains was found one year later by a bushwalker in the Belanglo Forest again. Um, they were identified as 19-year-old Australian locals James Gibson and Deborah Everest. They disappeared either on December 9th or December 30th of 1989. The sources vary, but that is a wide variation. Just a bit. Um, yeah. So they were hitchhiking between Liverpool and Goulburn, and they were killed by multiple stab wounds, and their bodies were covered up with debris. Their clothing and backpacks were taken, but they had also been shot and tied up. Hmm. And then after they were discovered, um, the police started a task force to kind of search for more bodies. Um, over 300 police officers searched the Belanglo Forest, and within a month, they found three more bodies. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, the first of which was German tourist Simone Schmiedel. She was 21, and she was found in October of 1992. She disappeared from the same stretch of highway that Everest and Gibson disappeared from on January 21st, 1991. And it was found in the autopsy that she had been bound, gagged, and stabbed repeatedly. Two more German tourists were found on November 4th, 1992, they were identified as Gabor Neugebauer, who is 21, and his girlfriend Anya Habsheed, who is 20. They were last seen alive on Boxing Day of 1991, and they were hitchhiking from King's Cross to Darwin when they vanished. Uh, Neugebauer appeared to be strangled and then shot six times in the head. And his girlfriend Anya was nude below the waist and was decapitated with her head missing from the scene. Oh. Did they ever find her head? I have no idea. Maybe this was the body that the medical examiner was given that we learned about in forensics. And he just, he threw in the head of a 14-year-old to just complete the body. Imagine the overlap. It's got to be. It has to be. In the U.S., a U.S. body medical examiner and a German tourist in Australia. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, that that lines up. They're the same age, too, and the same gender. So whatever. Oh, yeah. We're good. Yeah. Anyway, as we can see, there's a progression of violence in the crimes as each gets more and more gruesome. Um, The profiler that was brought to the scene said that Malat was someone who is violent just for the sake of violence, which is an interesting observation. Um, It was also noted that all of the stabbing victims had the unique injury of a stab wound in the neck that would have severed their spinal cord and rendered them helpless and dead. Um, also, many of the victims were partially undressed with their pants unbuttoned but not zipped. And, or no, their pants were buttoned but not zipped. Um, evidence of crude bondage and strangulation was also present in most of the cases. And they were all buried in a shallow grave face down with their hands behind their backs. So That's gotta mean something. Right? That's kind of like executioner style. Yeah, it's very weird. Very weird. I don't like that. Yeah, me neither. Um, In November 1993, police officers published photos of the victims and received many calls from people saying that they had seen the victims before they disappeared, but no one had seen the killer. Except for Mr. Paul Onions. Um, Paul Onions heard about the backpack murders on TV when he was back in the UK where he's from, and it kind of brought back the memory of his own near-death experience outside of Sydney in 1990. So he had been hitchhiking and got picked up by a guy named Bill, who drove a silver Nissan four-wheel drive truck. And when they were half a mile north of the Belanglo State Forest, Bill stopped the car and pulled a gun on Onions. Luckily, Onions was able to escape and ran through the bush with bullets whizzing past his head. He had been in the Navy, so he knew to zigzag, so the bullets didn't get him. Um, A car picked him up and took him to the police station, where he gave a statement that was just filed and put away and never looked at. And then, once he had heard about the backpack murders, he called the police officers again, and they flew him back to Australia, and he was able to identify Ivan Malott as his attacker. How many years after? Because you said that it was three? Yeah. But how would you remember 
the color of his car, the make of the car, like all all of that. I think it was his um his handlebar mustache that was the main um mm, classic. Yep. Descriptors really yeah. just shouldn't have identifiable features if they don't want to get caught. Like I feel like a handlebar mustache is very identifiable. If you are like the most generic individual and a serial killer i'm sure you'll get by yeah and he had a very identifiable handlebar mustache and that was like the main kind of identifier that he had okay um and malat was also already under suspicion by the police but they had no evidence linking him to the crime so they couldn't get a warrant warrant to search his house why sorry Uh, why was he under suspicion does it say um, like him and his brothers had gotten into some trouble with the law, so they oh, kind of know. Okay. And um, when he assaulted those girls, he had apparently used the alias Bill. Then, oh, rookie mistake, right? That's so suspicious. they knew that. Yeah. Anyway, on May twenty second, nineteen ninety four, fifty police officers raided Malat's home in Eagle Vale, which is a suburb in Sydney, and he lived there with his girlfriend at the time. Um, officers found him there, and when they searched his house, they found firearms linked to the murders and tons of camping gear that belonged to the victims. And because they kind of suspected or thought that other people were involved in the killings, they searched his family's houses to see if he worked alone or not. Um, they found ammunition, guns, ropes, and cable ties that appeared to be identical to those used on the victims, although everyone said that they belonged to Ivan. And apparently, a sword was found at Malat's mother's house that belonged to Anya, one of his victims. I don't did know if they mean sword sword or if they mean large knife. Did he, like, samurai stab these victims? Like, two-hand samurai back in the neck? I have no idea. But it but was the victim sword. Why yeah. the victim? I feel like it's a machete, like, something to get through the bush. Yeah, it doesn't make sense that have she a would... Sword? Yeah, it doesn't make sense that she would be hitchhiking with a sword because they're not exactly travel friendly. But if they're like if they're hiking and like camping out and stuff, it may be like a machete or a large knife to kind of yeah. cut through the bush or help. With yeah, fire a machete makes the most sense. Yeah, that would I be don't... crazy. Australia does seem pretty wild, like in terms of their wildlife there. Like I think you need a little bit of protection going going so, uh, hiking in the outback. If anyone from Australia is listening, let us know. Do you carry swords everywhere? Thank Please you. email us with your inquiries. Um, he also maintained his innocence when in police custody. He never admitted to these murders, ever, which is very interesting. I don't know how I feel about that. Right? But there's... Because we've learned so much about wrongful conviction in class, and I'm like, well, he didn't He didn't admit to it, and he kept. He, he really, really believed he was innocent, so was he? I'm going to go with no. I do not like him. He gives me the creepies. Um, he just looks like an awful person. Anyway, on May 31st, 1994, he was charged with seven counts of murder and the attack of Paul Onions, along with multiple weapons charges because some of his rifles were banned by Australian law. Um, his trial was the biggest murder trial that Australian ha- Australia had ever seen, and it began in 1996. One source said that it lasted four months, but if it was the biggest murder trial, I'm going to assume that it had to have lasted longer than that. Um, And he pled not guilty to all charges because he wouldn't admit to doing them at all, and he thought he was innocent. Like I've kind of already mentioned, his attorney attempted to suggest that his brothers were also suspects, but they found no evidence of anyone else being involved, and Malat was not at work any of the days of the crimes. So he had no alibi, but all of his brothers had an alibi. And it was also posited that his control issues would not let him work with someone else. Like they were that extreme that even just allowing someone to kill one of his victims, he wouldn't be able to do. You'd think he'd seek therapy. Like if he was so troubled by his control problems that he couldn't even work. You'd think he would seek treatment for that. But I don't think that he noticed that he had these control issues or saw an issue with it. Often it's them themselves 
that wasn't proper English, but whatever, gonna go with it. They don't realize the harm that they're causing others and themselves. It's the people around them that see it. So unless someone is there to be like, hey, you're a controlling a-hole, then he's gonna be like, yeah, I'm a normal person. Yeah, exactly. Um, When they searched his house, they also found rope in a pillowcase in his basement. And the rope was covered in blood, and it matched Carolyn Clark, one of his first victims. And they also found parts of the murder weapons used in two of the deaths in a hole in his wall. So he had, like, disassembled the gun that he used and then hid it in a wall. And he said, no, that's not mine, even though it was very obviously his. And he had a picture of his girlfriend wearing a sweater that belonged to Carolyn Clark. He, like, stole it out of her backpack. I just got the heebie-jeebies. I literally just shivered. I don't like that. I vaguely mentioned wrongful conviction earlier, but I take it back. I think he's guilty. <laughs> Did Do you think the girlfriend knew that it was a dead person's sweater? No, she probably just thought, oh, look at this sweet gift from my boyfriend. Like, this wow. is a nice sweater. A used sweater that smells like someone else. Well, no, I'm sure she washed it. Maybe he washed uh, it. I don't know. I don't do you know. think you've ever been given dead people clothes? I mean, we shop at Valley Village a lot, so there's a really good possibility of that that I don't love. Yeah, not a fan. I do wear really old men sweaters. Maybe. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I'm going to forget that I thought about that. Well, like, she didn't die in the sweater, and he took it off her. Like, it was in her backpack, and then he just gave it to her his girlfriend. So it's, like, less weird than a dead body wore it, but it does belong yeah. to a dead person. Fair enough. Yeah. Um, in his trial, he chose to take the stand because he was so confident that he was not going to be charged. It did not help his situation because in cross-examination, they asked him about rubber gloves that they found at one of the scenes, crime scenes. And he blurted out without thinking, I didn't ever wear and then stopped. And then they could concluded- No, he didn't. Yeah, and they concluded trial that place to stop, so everyone just had to ruminate on what he just said. Oh, I wish I was there to witness that. Right? How stupid do you have to be? Yeah. Oh, no, I didn't. Uh, I'm just speechless. I don't know what to say about that. Like, oh, my God, how can you be so dumb? Right? As a killer. to First of all, as a known killer, to take the stand and try to defend yourself because it's already known that I mean I guess to us that you're more like defendants just shouldn't take the stand it doesn't matter if you're innocent or not it it usually just doesn't end up well it's not good yeah anyway the jury found him guilty of the seven murders not surprised um he was sentenced to seven life sentences and another six years for the attempted murder of onions uh when justice david hunt was giving out the sentence he said quote in my view it is inevitable that the prisoner was not alone in that criminal enterprise end quote so they still believed that someone had assisted him in the killings and then when malott appealed in february of 1997 he stated that he was appealing because he did not act alone. So he's kind of like playing off what the judge kind of said because he's like, oh, the judge already believes that. This is an easy way out. Nothing happened. Could it have been a brother? Like, that's the only person I think. That's who they think it was. Yeah. But they all had alibis. Like, none of them were not busy during any of the killings. Did that make sense? I, I question why at the appeal... He thought that saying he didn't act alone would help him because he's essentially admitting to it by saying, oh, but I didn't act alone. And at the same time, he's still not going to get acquitted just because he didn't act alone. If anything, it just reopens the investigation. Yeah, right. But they never there was no evidence at any of the crime scenes to link anyone to them other than he had all of their stuff and none of the brothers had anything. Um, Three months later, uh, he and a couple other inmates were placed under extra security because they had tried to escape and it was foiled by the guards. Um, He had admitted plans to escape quite a few times, but he never followed up. And he has tried to kill himself by swallowing razor blades and staples. And he also cut off one of his fingers in 2009. No one knows why, um, but it was too damaged to reattach. 
He's just obsessed with his luck journey. He's obsessing. Five fingers is too much for him. <laughs> he needs four. <laughs> I Like, I don't understand. But whatever. Anyway, um, he appealed again in November of 1997, but this time he fired his lawyer and represented himself. Nothing happened. Because, of course, someone with no law degree and is convicted of murder is obviously going to be better than a lawyer at yep. appealing your case. Pretty much. And then in June 2001, he was questioned um, about the disappearance and deaths of three other women. Um, he didn't admit to anything and he denied knowing them, so he wasn't charged. And he's also thought to have killed Peter Letcher in 1987. He was shot in the head and stabbed several times in the back and was found in the same forest as the others. No evidence came linking him to that and there was no, um, no charges pressed. So no one really knows. Um, he died of esophageal and stomach cancer on October 27th of last year, 2019. I didn't know he was dead. Yes, thankfully. Pity. And that concludes the life story of Ivan Malat. Thank you for that case study on Malat. It's kind of fun because like going into it, the two of us never know their stories. So it's always so interesting because it's kind of like a firsthand experience thing. But anyways, um, Rebecca, you have some information to tell us now on eyewitness identification. I do. And I'm going to try my best not to talk for an hour about it because it gets me really riled up because it excites yeah. me. <laughs> yeah. Um, this may be a so, longer episode. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So eyewitness identification, uh, just briefly... Even though it's pretty explainable by the name itself, um, it's just basically when someone has seen or been a victim of a crime and they were able to get a look at the perpetrator. Uh, so they're able to identify them for the police and then testify in court about the identification that they made. So even though eyewitness identification is very prevalent and often used as key evidence in a lot of trials, uh, it can be pretty problematic and psychologists are... Uh, heavily questioning the reliability of it. Uh, so just before we go into more of that, I just want to talk about the main forms of lineups because uh, there's multiple ways in which police will ask a witness to identify them. Uh, first of all, there's the photo lineup in which the witness is shown a set of photos and they're asked to identify the suspect from the, the lineup of photos. There's also a live lineup that is usually um, happens after a photo lineup. And in the live lineup, uh, the witness is shown a group of people and they can see the members of the lineup, but the members of the lineup can't see the witness. So it protects the witness's identity and makes them feel safer, which allows them to give a more unbiased opinion. And then they're asked there if they see their perpetrator in the lineup and if so, which one it is. This is what we usually see on TV's uh, TV and movies, and it's usually pretty dramatized. <laughs> Uh, the next one is not recommended by social scientists and psychologists. It's called a show-up. Uh, it's pretty similar to a live lineup, but instead of having a group of people that they're showing the witness, they only show the witness the suspect that the police have in mind, and they're shown alone. These are very suggestible because they're usually performed in pretty biasing ways. Uh, for example, one of the frequent ways is shown is the suspect in handcuffs or sitting in a cop car and the witness is just asked whether or not this is who committed the crime. So just by having the suspect sitting in a cop car or having handcuffs on suggests guilt and it does make it more likely that they'll be uh, identified even if they're not the real perpetrator. Uh, the final one isn't as common now as it used to be, but it's mugshot searches and these are done by having the witness flip through a binder or a computer folder of mugshots of convicted criminals uh, to see if they recognize their perpetrator. And these are done when the police don't have a suspect, but they want to get an identification from the witness. Going from there, like I said, eyewitness identification can be important. And if it's correct, it's a very persuasive piece of key evidence used in court to convict someone. However, it's not terribly reliable because the human memory isn't very reliable. <laughs> so 
The Innocence Project states that mistaken eyewitness identification is actually the number one reason for wrongful convictions in the United States, and it contributes to about 69% of the wrongful convictions that have been overturned by DNA. And Nicole, very... I see you laughing at 69. <laughs> <laughs> that is a very high percentage of... It is. Or... Yeah, it's very alarming. Yeah. Um, So... I can't really give statistics on Canada because we are significantly lacking in both research about wrongful conviction, but also juror evidence and research in general, because we have very strict laws in Canada about what you can and can't ask a juror. So to understand why mistaken eyewitness identification is so prevalent, I just wanted to briefly go into a little bit about the human memory. So first of all, we as humans, we don't have as good memories as we'd like to think. We forget things pretty quickly. And as much as we'd like to admit, nobody's memory can improve. So if you remember an event, chances are you're not remembering it the same as when it happened 10 years ago. Uh, additionally, memories are not static. So they can be influenced and changed by experiences that occur after the event. So even a witness who saw a crime speaking to another witness who saw the crime, if they saw different things, their separate opinions by talking to each other can influence each other and change their own stories. So do you think the fact that Paul Onions identified Malat three years after his attack, do you think that could, like, I know that I said that it was his handlebar mustache, but like, do you think that was accurate? I think it's really hard to say because... With all of the other evidence against Milat, I think it was him. But I don't think we should really rely on the eyewitness testimony because it happened so long after the original event. I think if it happened sooner, you know, it may have had some sway over the jury more than it did, if that makes sense. Because, like, side story, my dad and I, we were, we saw what we thought to be a domestic dispute between two people in a car on a road we called it in to the non-emergency line because we weren't sure exactly what was happening. They checked it out and they were asking for identification on what the two people looked like and what their two cars looked like. And this was literally not even five minutes later as we were driving away. And my dad and I had two different descriptions of what the car looked like. Like they were kind of similar of what the man looked like. I had no idea what the woman looked like. And, like, that's five minutes after. And then to go three years, I would have no idea. Yeah, there's so many factors that can influence human memory. It's crazy how faulty our memory can be when we think that it's so reliable. Generally speaking, the memory kind of levels off after about two days. So after, like, anytime after two days, you're not going to remember any new details about an event. Some people may ask, what about hypnosis? That's been used to help witnesses remember, but it's not reliable and actually is not even admissible in Canadian courts. So hypnosis, even though it was kind of designed in terms of court proceedings to help memory or help witnesses uh, remember more about an event, uh, it is actually just an altered state of consciousness that they put the witnesses in, and it really just puts them in a heightened state of suggestibility. So anything the police could be telling them during the state of hypnosis could actually influence uh, their memory after the fact. So just a little background about Canadian justice. In the R.V. Trocum decision in 2007, the Supreme Court of Canada actually deemed that all evidence that's obtained through hypnosis is inadmissible in Canadian courts. So if they were to elicit any type of confession or testimony out of a uh, hypnosis session, Canada's not having it. That's not the same with the states, though, which is crazy because for our innocence um, assignment we had to do, the guy that I did it on, the one of the main eyewitnesses went under hypnosis and they were trying to see to enhance or improve her memory they said um whether she called out the victim's name as she knocked on the door she was unsure at the time went through hypnosis and that's all they focused on was did you call out the victim's name because obviously it aligned with the facts and then at the time of the trial she was like 100 percent certain that it happened but no one was told that it was under hypnosis. That's definitely problematic. I think even though I don't believe hypnosis should be admissible anywhere, 
Um, I think the jury should at least be made aware that it's occurring. Yeah. Yeah, that's super shady. Right? Yeah. So, uh, next, I wanted to talk about what can have an effect on a witness's identification, because there are a lot of impacts there. Um, so, in at the initial crime, things that can affect a witness's perception of a person include stress. So, how stressful was the situation? How stressed was the person at the time of the crime? Uh, weapon focus. This one is super interesting, but really hard to study because we can't ethically bring weapons into a psychological experiment. Uh, but weapon focus is basically that when there's a weapon involved in a crime, the witness will spend more time focusing on the weapon than the face of who's holding it. So they won't have as much time to encode the details of their face. Uh, disguises can obviously have an impact. So a lot of perpetrators will hide themselves uh, with hats or sunglasses. So they might not get the full picture anyways. Uh, exposure time has a big role in eyewitness identification. So how long did they see the perpetrator? How long did the event take? Generally speaking, the longer time that they were able to see the perpetrator, the better they ha the memory they have of them, which seems pretty self-explanatory. Something interesting about exposure time is that people are generally pretty bad at estimating how long they were able to get a look at a perpetrator, more frequently, uh, we greatly overestimate the length of time that we thought we saw something happen. So someone might have seen something happen for 10 seconds and claim they saw it for a minute or more. Uh, time time is such a bad concept in general to wrap your head around. But, but then when you're faced with all of these external stimuli and then trying to remember a face, like even now, I could have been like, we've been on this call for what, 100, 100 one hour and 20 minutes math and numbers are hard to me but I would have been like yeah it's felt like 30 minutes like yep. and then if I have someone pointing a gun at me I'd be like oh it was three minutes and it was just like a give me your money and then run that was not three minutes if that was the case the human memory is just crazy to me I don't like I mean I guess I do understand why it's so static we're not computers or not so static sorry um so also influencing at the scene are the viewing conditions. So how well lit was the scene? Because you're going to get a lot more of a person's face in a brightly lit room than a pitch black room at night. Uh, and also the distance that the person was to the perpetrator, because obviously the farther away that someone is, the less individual features you're going to see of them. So other things that affect a witness's identification uh, during the identification or like in between the time between the crime and the identification are uh, cross race identification, also known as the same race bias. So as much as we might not like to admit it, virtually everybody experiences the same race bias. It's not racism. It is just a fact of life and anthropology that we tend to be better at identifying people of our own race than we are at identifying people of other race. So that's often a big uh, issue with identification. And the other one would be retention interval, which is very important in Milot's case. The retention interval is the time between the event and the subsequent memory recall test. So how long between the crime did the police ask them to make a sketch or make an identification? And in Milot's case, it was two years. Ideally, the police will do it as soon as they can. So that's alarming. Uh, generally, the shorter the retention interval, the better the outcome, because like we said earlier, forgetting occurs pretty quickly and the memory can change. One more thing that can impact it, as we also mentioned, was speaking to other witnesses or the police that have more details. Uh, because say a witness said, oh, I saw a man in a hoodie. And some sometime before the lineup or sometime before the trial, the police happens to mention, oh, we have a suspect, he's 6'4". There's a chance that that fact could get embedded in the witness's memory, but they may not recall that the police gave them that information, so they will just embed it into their own original memory. So with all of the factors that can influence a person's memory, I want to talk about the actual conduct um, of lineups and identification and how that may have a factor. So... The first uh, obvious one would be the nominal and functional size of the lineup. So the nominal size of the lineup is the amount of people actually in the lineup. So psychological research 
uh, suggests that an ideal lineup will have no less than 10 people because it really gives the suspect kind of a fair, unbiased or less biased uh, chance. Generally in Canada, lineups are 10 to 12 people. The functional size of a lineup is how many people are really in the lineup. So how many people fit the description that the witness gave to the police? So just as an example, let's say the suspect is a six foot five white man. Uh, They put him in a lineup with him, a five foot five white man, a black man and a Latino man. The nominal size is four, but the functional size is only going to be one because only one person really matched the description that the witness had given. So they're obviously going to be more inclined to pick that person, whether or not it was truly the perpetrator. It grinds my gears when they don't have people in the lineup that match the suspect's description or the perpetrator's description. It Oh, it makes me so mad. Oh my God. I know. I could literally talk all day about this subject. I'm trying to be concise, but it is hard. So another important Uh, part of lineup procedure are the instructions given to the witness. Instructions must be very specific because there is so much that the police can say or do that can influence a witness subconsciously. So, for example, the police or the person that's uh, conducting the lineup should implicitly tell the witness that the perpetrator may or may not be in the lineup and that uh, they must be made aware that they're allowed to pick none of the options given to them. Uh, One main reason for wrongful conviction on behalf of eyewitness identification is that the witness isn't made aware that they can choose not to select anyone. Uh, So they end up using relative judgment, which means that instead of comparing the people in the lineup to the image in their head, they're actually just comparing them to each other and trying to figure out which one looks most like how they describe them. So this can obviously lead to wrongful conviction because then they're just looking for things that stand out most within the lineup and aren't thinking that someone else could be out there that did it. So it's also important that they're made aware that the investigation will continue whether or not they've made a selection because often a witness can feel pressure to make a selection believing that if they don't make one, the investigation ends and they have no more leads. Uh, Next, the police shouldn't provide feedback after identification. Uh, At most, they can say like, okay, Okay, thanks. Thanks for your time. Uh, we'll call you. We'll call you stuff like that. But they shouldn't say things like "Thanks, you picked the same one as the other witnesses," or "Thanks, that was our suspect," because that can greatly inflate their confidence uh, whether or not the decision was right, and that can also impact memory. Uh, next would be lineup presentation, specifically whether it was a simultaneous or sequential lineup. So a simultaneous lineup is when all of the pictures or the people in a live lineup are presented at the same time to the witness. So the witness is seeing 10 photos or 10 people in front of them at the same time. This is problematic because it's a much harder task for the witness and it increases the likelihood that a relative judgment is going to occur. So consequently, this is also increases the likelihood of a wrongful conviction because relative judgment does that. Uh, The more effective type of presentation in terms of uh, being not biased and trying to reduce wrongful conviction would be sequential lineups. And this is when the pictures or the members of a lineup are shown to the witness one at a time. So in this case, the witness will make a yes or no decision after each photo and This induces an absolute judgment instead of a relative judgment. And what that means is basically that they're able to compare the photo they're seeing with the photo in their mind instead of trying to compare each photo to each other. So in this type of lineup, uh, the witness doesn't know how many lineup members will be presented to them. So this also reduces the likelihood of them choosing someone because they feel like they have to because they're not aware when the lineup is going to end. So they're thinking, oh, well, maybe it'll be the next photo. In a sequential lineup, it's important that only one lap of the photos is conducted. So generally, the suspect should only be able to look at the photos one time over because the error rate increases with every time the witness re-looks at the photos, which I think is pretty interesting. Even though we shouldn't 
let them take more laps of the photos because it increases the rate of false identification and relative judgment. Canada's standard procedure is still to allow the witnesses as many laps as they want because they want to respect the witness uh, and witnesses often feel like disrespected or feel like they didn't do a good enough job if they were only given one time around. So how can we prevent mistaken identifications from happening? There's a lot of ways that we can try to prevent it from happening, but ultimately eyewitness identification is seen as very important in the courts and it's very valued by the jury. Um, but by using the proper lineup instructions, uh, conducting it sequentially instead of uh, simultaneously and generally giving them one run through as well as taking confidence intervals right after the identification are all very important. Briefly, a confidence interval is basically asking the witness immediately after identification, how confident are you in your selection? And let's say the witness selects 50%. And then they're asked again on the stand when they're testifying, how confident are you that you selected the perpetrator out of the lineup? If they say 75% or 100%, why has their confidence increased? This suggests that they were influenced by an external force uh, and also gives the jury uh, the message that we don't know everything about the reliability of eyewitness identification and that confidence does not equal accuracy. So Something else we can do is a double-blind procedure. This is key to an unbiased lineup procedure, as this would ensure that the person conducting it and helping the witness through the procedure doesn't know the suspect. This will prevent them from giving them unconscious cues, such as, like, say, coughing when they flip to the photo of the perpetrator, or the suspect, sorry. Basically, double-blind procedure ensures that the investigator in charge of the case isn't swaying the decision of the witness. That's Next. like, do you know Do you know the game Signal? It's like spoons, but instead of grabbing spoons, you have a signal with your partner. Yeah, It's like a detective fun. being like, itching their nose, being like, it's, it's that one. Choose that one. Or kicking yeah. them under the table. Exactly. So it's essentially just a game of signal, but it could cost someone their life. So next seems like an obvious one, but a lot of places still don't do it for some reason. And that's documenting the procedure, such as recording the whole thing on video and audio. Because believe it or not, just having someone write down what happened afterwards isn't terribly reliable. Shocking. Shocking. So in court, how can we try to prevent uh, misidentifications from convicting someone. The defense lawyer can cross-examine the crown witness and ask questions on their exposure time, how far was the witness from the perpetrator, uh, how they identified them from the lineup, how long it took them, all that sort of stuff. Really just things that act to show the jury what kind of factors could have influenced their identification. Uh, the defense lawyer's job is to ensure that the evidence of the Crown is trustworthy. So although some people might see it as a little rude that they're really scrutinizing a witness who just went through something horrible, we have to do it to ensure that everything is fair. Next, we could introduce expert witnesses such as psychologists to talk about the reliability and the psychological literature regarding human memory and mistaken eyewitness identification because hearing from an expert witness could really help a jury just further understand that maybe not everything we hear is 100% true. Maybe there are error and not everybody's perfect. Um, unfortunately, this doesn't really act as a good safeguard in Canada for eyewitnesses because the Canadian Department of Justice stated that the use of expert evidence on the frailties of eyewitness identification is redundant and unnecessary in the fact-finding process. So that angers me. Well, it's crazy, too, that they still have, like, they still call expert witnesses on, like, memory and stuff like that, but they completely ignore them. So our professor, she was at court last Wednesday testifying as an expert um I guess an expert witness. So she gave the jury a history and 
the explanation, implications, whatever, of witness memory and how it's fallible and how it's not great. And yet the courts just ignore this. Like they have her come in, give this beautiful speech. She literally wrote a thesis on it, essentially. Like it was like a 20 page write up just for her court hearing. And they were like, yeah, we're just not going to listen to that because eyewitness memory is just whatever. Yeah. Patriot actually talked about that today. He was saying, my colleague of mine, Stinson, had to go to court last week and they didn't even listen to her. (laughs) Yeah, she had this like beautiful write up and very like basically our eyewitness lecture, but a lot nicer and condensed for jury members who aren't in psychology and law. And they just completely ignored it, put it to the side and they're like, well, thanks, but no thanks. It's so annoying. Like the whole job of someone who studies psych and law is to identify like the fallacies in the court proceedings and how we can fix them and how we can ensure that we use them to prevent problematic trials and they but just then the, don't care sorry. the court's like oh we don't make mistakes i don't want to hear it um you can come in and talk but we're not gonna listen and like it, yeah that's so redundant <laughs> it really is the last part of that Department of Justice statement was actually a proper charge and caution by the trial judge can best deal with the inherent dangers of identification evidence. So they really just think of themselves as God. It's so frustrating as an academic and we're learning this. Like we know how to prevent mistaken eyewitness identifications, wrongful convictions, false confessions. And the courts are just like, no, like, no, we no, we know how to fix it. We like... We take, we're taking a course on how to fix the courts and we're taking a course on how to fix forensics and just none of them, like none of the suggestions are being implemented and it's, oh my goodness, it's so annoying. Yeah, I just, I can't wrap my head around it. Like it's right either. in front of you. Look at it. It doesn't cost anything to just be like, oh yeah, this is what's going, like this is what's wrong. Implementing an extra like five minutes into your interrogation isn't going to cost you hundreds of thousands of dollars like it just i don't get it this is why we're starting our own um agent what is it our not law firm but what did we call it forensics agency yeah (laughs) we're starting we're just gonna start a new supreme court of canada and it's gonna be (laughs) supreme and we're gonna use psychology it's gonna be great yeah we're gonna get rid of all the bad things no junk science <laughs> and no mistaken eyewitness identifications. Yeah. <laughs> Clearly, we're very passionate about this. <laughs> yeah, but it's crazy, too, because the fact that that is stating that the trial judge needs to provide a warning or caution to the jury about whatever, it doesn't work. Like the It judge- also doesn't happen a lot of the time. And no. even if it does, the jury's not going to listen to, like, you said our professor testified or as an expert witness in court, all the judge has to do to make that inadmissible after she spoke is say, jury, please disregard that and don't pay any attention to it during your final deliberation. What is that going to do? They already heard it. Yeah, they. it's already going to influence their decision. And it's like, it just baffles me too, because I read a case about this and a lot of it was talking about um, like how off it was a lot of like circumstantial evidence about his character how he acted as an individual and his past crimes but the judge was like well you know you need to consider that this is only circumstantial but i'm like well you just sat and listened to the offender getting crapped on about his past life for however many minutes and hours and now you have to try and make a decision against that like i have to pretend like you didn't just hear it yeah i don't know okay i also read a case and it was a wrongful conviction based on an eyewitness misidentification. And the judge did say, like, you can't just use this one eyewitness as sole grounds to convict. But I don't think the jury understood it because he was able to appeal his trial on the grounds that the judge didn't give clear instructions. So even if they do give him, there's no standardized way to make sure that the jury will understand what he's saying. Was that the Vetrovic caution or the vetrovic warning whatever um i <laughs> thought it was the one i just did but oh. it could very well okay be. because i know um 
there is now like these cautions that the judges have to give is because at least in Canada was because of the case RV Vetrovic because something happened like he was seen as an the witness sorry was untrustworthy gave evidence to the court and the jury wasn't told hey this guy's very untrustworthy you should maybe take his testimony with a grain of salt so he ended up getting a crazy conviction um but yeah it says gives judges the discretion to warn the jury of the risks of accepting the testimony of untrustworthy witnesses so this is also used for any other discretional warning this leads me really well into my last point and that is that one way to attempt to minimize uh misidentification is judicial instructions (laughs) whoa no way so as we have just bashed on it for 10 minutes clearly it's not the most effective but it is still important to recognize as juries tend to be highly influenced by eyewitness testimony generally speaking it doesn't matter how strong your other evidence is a jury is very influenced by a real victim saying in court my perpetrator is sitting in front of me because they don't they don't want to tell the victim that they're wrong some of the important things that could be included in judicial instructions but usually aren't because we just had a whole rant about that uh is detailing to the jury the amount of time between the crime and the later identification that happened because that can give them an idea of uh how much time they may have had to be influenced Um, explaining that their confidence level does not equal accuracy and that accuracy and the amount of detail in a witness's original report uh, could also fit same descriptions of a lot of people. So as I mentioned earlier, describing a man with a beard and a hoodie, a lot of people can fit that. It might be accurate, but it doesn't mean it's individualistic. The whole accuracy and confidence relationship makes me so angry like with eyewitness testimony it's some belief journey and i read an article about it and we ended up messaging our prof because we're like what the heck this goes against everything we learned um but like what we were taught in lecture was that as your confidence goes up your accuracy goes down because you're like oh yeah that was a hundred percent him whereas you're kind of going back through everything in your mind building up your confidence making the accuracy worse But the study that we read was something saying that as the accuracy goes up, confidence goes up, or as confidence goes up. Like, it was something like that. And we were like, what the heck? Yes, sorry. That was, that's just, it's another psych and law thing that angers me. Um, So one more thing that the jury can be instructed on, or not necessarily instructed, but informed on, is uh, mentioning if there was a weapon involved and that weapon focus could have existed. Uh, the type of lineup that was used and why it's important that there's a difference. If this was a case of cross-racial identification, it should be mentioned that cross-race bias exists and may be less likely to be accurate if there is a cross-race identification occurring. Yeah, so despite the fact that a lot of these should be mentioned in jury instructions, obviously judges aren't going to know everything, and all of these are the reason that we need expert witnesses to educate the jury. Yeah, I can't wait until I get my jury summons, if I ever get a jury summons. And I'm just going to sit there and be like, uh, where's our caution? Where, uh, give it to us. You're missing this. You're missing that. They're going to be like, yeah, okay, you're off the jury. See ya. <laughs> so that was all that I had on eyewitness identification. I can answer more questions if you have anything else to wonder, but I know you guys are pretty clear on it too. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we had a whole class on it, basically. <laughs> so we're always open to emails, questions. I know our family members watch or listen to us. They always message us with questions, but we'd love to hear from people that are not in our little bubble. That'd be fun. Yes. It kind of applies to all of our episodes because obviously we go over like we do an overview of the science in every episode because we only have so much time. But obviously there's so much we want to talk about. Yeah. We could go on about this for like five hours, I swear. Well, it's kind of like nerd, not nerdy, but it, like this is our daily conversation we have. Not even when we like record our podcast. This is just what we talk about. We're like, we decided Whoa. to make a podcast because we thought, oh. 
maybe someone else likes our nerdy conversations. <laughs> yeah, like we talk about this uh, way too much. Let's just record ourselves. So welcome to What the Forensics. That's how we came up with it. Sorry if it was not as exciting as you thought. <laughs> well, thank you, Rebecca, for that. Um, my gears are still grinding a bit over it. But we have kind of... So instead of choosing a random number from the big book of serial killers we decided to kind of go off of a case that we learned about in a couple of our classes that kind of has to do with eyewitness identification but more so false confessions so that's going to be our topic um for our next episode it's of the norfolk four and i believe they were the first individual was convicted because of eyewitness identification and then the rest had to do with false confessions and that's another thing that'll be a topic of interest for us because again this is basically our whole forensics classes like people are doing things wrong people are confessing when they shouldn't be confessing this legal system is bad so you will hear us then but unfortunately it will be in three weeks instead of two just because christmas eve is in two weeks and the three of us celebrate christmas um I'm sorry if you do not celebrate Christmas, but our episode will be posted on the 31st. So hopefully you will tune in then and journey. Where can people find us if they want to know more? People can find us on Instagram, YouTube, and Facebook at What the Forensics. Our Twitter is WTForensicsPC, and our website is whattheforensics.ca. If they have any questions, our email is whattheforensics at gmail.com if they're interested in sending us an email. Yeah, and we frequently check Instagram as well. So you can always shoot a DM and Facebook. We're always on Facebook, which we probably shouldn't because we're in five courses in final season. But <laughs> that's besides the point. That's Well, before we go, um, I have a little joke for you guys. Yay. Do you guys know the energy? This isn't the joke, but you know the Energizer Bunny? Of yes. course. Okay, what crime was the Energizer Bunny charged with? Oh, I know this one. Battery. <laughs> <laughs> Assault and battery. I love it. Oh, thank you, thank you. <laughs> so... That's the end of our episode, and we hope everybody has a happy holidays. And if you don't celebrate the holidays, we hope you have a great winter break, and we'll see you next time. Just a reminder to everyone that we are not professionals in the forensic science field. We are just students who are learning and want to share what we are learning with our listeners. We're trying to give you the most accurate information, but we are human and we can make mistakes. Thank you so much for listening, and we hope to see you next week.